a collection of everything so big it can never be catalogued or appraised, the loot of the world. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Hello looters, welcome to Thieves Monthly Movie Loot. We have a great episode for you, but before we get to that, as usual, I want to thank everybody that has been listening to our past episodes. Also, stay tuned for another special episode. That would be special episode number five, where I will focus on a scene I love from a film I love, and it will come out close to the end of the month, before our next regular episode. Finally, I hear someone's at the door. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. And that was David from the Piecing It Together podcast. Check out his stuff. He has a great format and he's super cool. Now for this episode, which we're calling the Oscars loot, we have a guest, Eric Anderson from Awards Watch. Let's go. The Oscars loot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. I'm joined today by a great guest, founder, owner, and editor-in-chief of Awards Watch, Eric Anderson. Hey there. I'm glad to have you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Great. We're going to talk about the Oscars today, but let's start talking about, about you. I've read that your love of award shows started since you were a kid. Tell us a bit about that. It definitely did. I used to watch everything from the Oscars to like beauty pageants with my mother and we would have like little sheets of paper of who we thought was going to win throughout the evening. And so it was, it was the thing that made me and my mother the closest. And, and we kind of continued that for quite a long time all through my crazy phases as a teenager and whatever else you know got in our way but it was always the the thing that we would fall back on and come back to every year and she'll always call me and and say well what do you think's winning and you know now she follows me and follows the website so she'll always comment and it's just it's it's kind of the same it's kind of cool i love it that's really lovely to have that connection and what was the first Oscar ceremony that you remember seeing with her? The first that I remember, which is obviously going to age me, uh, <laughs> is the Star Wars and Annie year. So I was like, uh, I was like 1977. Six, yeah, six years old, I think. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh. Don't, don't, don't reflect on that. Let, let, let that go. <laughs> And, and what is it that attracts you and draws you in about award shows? You know, I'm, I've always been really into statistics and lists and stuff like that. And it didn't even kind of matter what it was. It, it could be geography. It could be kind of like anything. And so it was, it was kind of a natural thing. I'm very 
I'm a very animated person, so performances and performing was always something that was really fascinating to me. And I've always loved movies since I was a very, very small kid. I don't know what specifically the element of awards really was as as a child. I don't know if I was looking at it like that. No, actually that's not really that true. I think it I think it really <laughs> I think if I'm being honest, like a lot of people, I I look at things like what can I achieve? What can I do and can I be the best at the thing that I'm doing? And if I am and when I am, what's my what what do I kind of get from it? What's my reward? And I don't mean that in a, like a materialistic or selfish yeah, yeah. way, but it's just but in a recognition kind of way. So I just always enjoyed the the pomp and circumstance of it. Obviously, I love the gowns and the red carpets and all that because I'm super gay and it's just like <laughs> it's like the gay Super Bowl. So <laughs> it was it was just always something always that was like in my DNA. So I can barely identify it because it was always there. And and like I said in the intro, I mean, you're the founder and owner and editor-in-chief of this website, Awards Watch, that, according to your description, brings you busts and predictions for the 365 days a year awards <laughs> season of film, television, and music with acute detail and thoughtful examination. <laughs> Not simply satisfied with what will win, but why and how. And that's a great description, but how did this project start? I mean, you, you've been engaged with all these awards and all this stuff since you were a kid, but how did this Awards Watch project start? So way back in the day, the early days of like movie forums and, and things like that, and really honestly, the beginning of the internet, even the though, 90s. I mean, yes, yeah, right in, in the 90s, even though I, I always had close friends that we would that would talk about movies together. I worked at video stores and, you know, we would have Oscar parties and all of that kind of stuff. I wanted I wanted more. I wanted more than my circle of people. So I found I think I started at the Gold Derby forums at first and I was like, oh, my God, there are thousands, if not millions of people that are totally like me. And it's, you know, it's a pretty classic thing where you do sort of feel like I come from a very small town uh, where you sort of feel like you're the only one that does and is interested in the things that you're interested in. And it kind of makes you a bit of a weirdo. And then you find a group of people that all likes that. And we're all weirdos together. And then it's like, okay, this is awesome. I love this. And so we bounced off ideas, you know, and I could be talking to somebody in Italy. And, you know, this is... I wasn't young, young, but this is, you know, before I traveled and it was just like, this, this is a, an entirely new experience and world and opinions and and also two perspectives because I only know my perspective and, and how I see things. So to, to listen to somebody whose experience with the Oscars or American culture, you know, is coming from a point of view of, you know, somebody in Asia or Europe or Africa or Latin America is an entirely different experience. And I just, I, I grew so much as a result of that. So I just kind of moved around, you know, forums and, and stuff like that. And it took me a very, very, very long time to kind of realize that, you know, it's not so much that maybe I'm really good at this, but I really like talking about it. And I feel like I have a lot of things to say that maybe somebody will want to listen to. So it, it did take a while from Golderby and then Oscar Watch, 
which became uh, Awards Daily after uh, it had to change the name. And I was like, I can do this too. <laughs> that's sort of that's sort yeah, of how I yeah. felt, and and I and I think almost anybody that that is doing this kind of thing is you have is to like, go for it. It's like you just gotta have you gotta do it, and and I did, and it was kind of off the bat mildly successful because you know I had a, a lot of people that that followed me or that listened to me and then that I would have conversations with over that that period of time between you know Gold Derby and Oscar Watch and all of those things and so I just had a I had a base I had a, a, a group of people that I could bring with me in this conversation and it just kind of happened from there and and here we are I was uh, looking at the website and I saw that it's a huge team. I mean, you have a lot of people working there, uh, writing and collaborating. So that's great. I think that's a great way to carry on this task of talking about awards. You know, it's funny because this was the thing that I that took me the longest to learn is that I was I was doing all everything myself entirely myself for many years and part of it was you know i'm i'm feeling like i have to create the brand then the brand is me but i'm also fully aware that i micromanage and that i have to control everything and and i had to i had to loosen that control not only to give myself a break but also to give other people opportunities to do things and to and to participate because I would not be here without the ability to have participated from a standpoint of being, you know, somebody that nobody knows. So I turned this corner where I was like, I have an opportunity because I have a platform now to give some people some voice and to be able to to do something that's been there, you know, lifelong dream and, and hobby and fascination. So I think once I hit that point, it was a it was a win-win for me because I was able to kind of let some of the things go, which, you know, I'm sure my therapist would absolutely love to hear, <laughs> uh, <and laughs> as well as give other people opportunities that they deserve to. Yeah, you're giving, um, like you said, other people's opportunities that maybe somebody gave to you when you were starting or, or maybe the other way around, maybe opportunities that you didn't have. But now you have the chance to do it the other way and say, you know, I'm going to give you the opportunity to write this or collaborate with this. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about the Oscars. Oscar night is generally regarded as this biggest night for Hollywood. But in recent times, the popularity of the show has somewhat diminished. Uh, ratings have gone down. The Academy has been making adjustments. Some people dismiss its importance. You know, they say, ah, the Oscars are not important. That's just for a, cert for a certain niche of movies or of people. What do you think about that? Do you think the Oscars are still relevant, still important? Uh, I think they're incredibly important. And I think they're, they're even more important now than they used to be, even though the viewership is down. And that's You know, there's there's a few reasons for that. One of them being that we now have 500 plus channels and shows and and ways to watch things in a way that we did not used to before. So inevitably, you know, ratings will go down and they will fluctuate all the time. It's that's just part of the beast. It's part of, of how how we consume entertainment as well. 
And it doesn't even necessarily mean that, you know, if if a big movie is nominated like Titanic, that that's all of a sudden going to change things and bring 40 million viewers in. We just had, you know, Black Panther and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and A Star is Born and all of these movies that are hundreds of millions to billion dollar movies. Joker, billion dollar movies. And that didn't change or fluctuate uh, the ratings very much. So it's not about the films that are nominated as much uh, as I think some people kind of want to be dismissive about it. It is it is a little more about, I believe, the accessibility of the Oscars. I wish that they had like a, you know, a Hulu Live or YouTube Live or just understood how people consume media now a little that they were a little more ahead of the game instead of behind it because they're pretty pretty far behind it right now. But on the other side of that, something that's always been my issue with the Oscars in the last, let's say, 15 years, once you get to once you get to the show or even to the to the nominations, half the movies the majority of the world has not seen. And it's because of the way that the releases happen. You get this like limited relief for Oscar consideration. And then two or three months later, it gets this like straggled release out. And people don't have things to root for. So sometimes when you have, and especially in a year like this, when you have all of these indie films that have gotten all of this acclaim, and then you have, you know, you read people on Twitter like, I haven't seen this. I don't even know what this movie, I haven't heard of any of these movies. And that's a problem and that's an issue with the studios and how they release things. And and having this old world thought process that they have to kind of cram a bunch of these things at the last minute in hopes that that gains the attention. And it might gain the attention, obviously, for the voting groups because they're smaller you know, there's smaller groups. You've got 90 people at the Golden Globes. You have 400 people at uh, Critics' Choice. You have 10,000 at the Oscars. That doesn't represent 300 million people in the United States, and it doesn't represent 7 billion people in the world that don't have the same access. Give more access. Make it make it more realistic for people to have something to root for, because I don't think there is anything more about the Oscars than having something to root for. It's just the same as sports. You know, you want to follow it all season. and you want to. I was going to use the analogy of the Super Bowl, yeah. (laughs) Of course. You want to have your team. You want to be able to to root for something. And if if only a small amount of people have that opportunity and a large group doesn't, of course they're going to be like, yes, the Oscars are irrelevant. And in that sense, they are. One of the things that you said, I agree totally because they see it as a window, you know, the Oscar season is November, December, you know, we got to release the film during this period. So the Academy remembers. So there's this, people sometimes call it the dead space between August, that's the end of the summer and blockbuster season, but we can't release anything in that period or uh, the start of the year when they dump the quote unquote bad films. And I think like you said, it does more damage. I I think so too. And it's, there is an air about the Oscars that enjoys a little bit of exclusivity. They do like, you know, being the last. They do like being the big thing. But, you know, there are just so many there are so many opportunities to embrace the movie going public instead of push it away. And I, I think they push away too much. 
what, if anything, will you change? Not necessarily in the ceremony. Uh, we can talk about that too, but uh, about the Oscars in general, the voting, the selection process, the scheduling, uh, Academy membership, the ceremony, what will you change? You know, they're, they're already doing an enormous amount in that regard. In the coming years, even more so, the, the new rules that they have coming for like 2024 are pretty intense. They're really... They're really a lot, but that's also kind of working from the top down. Okay. And it's only, you know, with regard to Best Picture, and it's only if you are making a movie that you want to be in that conversation. So there is, there's a certain thing about that that I kind of don't like, because then, e even though I know studios and, and certain producers are like, I want to make a movie that's going to, you know, be nominated for an Oscar. And that is the focus, and that is the goal. And that's fine. I'm not even going to dismiss that. But the the Academy now is creating a tremendous amount of rules and, and hoops to jump through in order to get there. And so you have to hit a bunch of different thresholds to do it. And I don't think it's going to be quite that difficult to do it. Yeah. And I do like them. I really do like them. Although this is only with regards to awards. It's not with, with regards to how you know films are made in general, which I, I think would be fantastic. If the movie making community abided by the rules that the Oscars are going to enforce in a couple of years, I think that would be pretty cool because I think that will expose and reveal a movie going public that has been often ignored. So I, I think I think that part's kind of cool. If in terms of my own ideas of things that I would change, you know, like I said before, the only thing I think I would really change about the the Oscars, is the availability of the show for a wider range of people. Back in the day, way, way back in the day, they were watched by like a billion people across the world. They were the, like the biggest, biggest thing after like a Super Bowl. And, and that was, you know, as a result of fewer shows to watch, fewer channels, and you just put all of your focus on that. But also at the same time, they were later in the year. They're April 25th this year which is kind of normal for how the Oscars used to be. And that's because they were in an era where movies would be in the theater for six months to a year. So yeah. everything actually had to be watched in a theater before the, you know, the era of, of home video or anything like that. And I think that just created a very different uh, way, way to watch things, way to regard things. But... You know, I'm not suggesting that the Oscars be at the end of April every year so that people could watch things in theaters, because that goes completely against what I just said a bit ago, that, you know, the Oscars need to understand how information and media is consumed and move to that, because I do think they do need to move to that. But they, they just haven't. They just haven't. They've stayed really kind of old fashioned. And and I, I, I think that's it's sort of also like how the Emmys they have moved so far from recognizing network television shows to just cable and premium cable. And if you don't have HBO and you don't have Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus and all of these things, you're seeing all of these shows win that you haven't seen. So why would you watch it? You you wouldn't. So it's it's a it's a really tough thing. And like you mentioned, with streaming now, I think it's making things harder for this 
old-fashioned group of people or old-fashioned institution to figure things out. And like you said, I think they're a bit behind and trying to catch up. I think, like you said, the measures they suggested and they put in place for the best picture are good, but I'm sure they can do more. I, I think they can. I don't know if they are the ones that need to, though. Like I said, that's yeah. kind of working from the top down instead of working at the, the issues that are a part of the movie making industry as, as a whole. And that is just opportunity, period. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, th- I think it's the kind of thing that maybe it will obviously shine a, a brighter light. And we are in an era, too, that has done that for people of color and for women and LGBTQ, that these stories are more told and they are valid and the people that make them are. So I think that's already happening, but it, it does need to happen at the you know executive level and the green light level. Yes, yes. But at least their their attempt to require uh, studios to involve people of color or minorities, LGBTQ um, women in the filmmaking process, I think it's a start. Like you said, I agree with you. The changes are uh, from top down, but I think it's a start. I think it might motivate other changes in other parts of the industry, or let's just hope so. I think so. And and one of the, the, the great things about the new Oscar rules that are coming and you can find them on awardswatch.com, um, is, <laughs> is that it's not just like, you know, directors and acting. It's all kinds. It's marketing. It's publicity. It's all of the elements that require, you know, a movie to be seen and noticed and recognized. So it's it's not it's not as topical as I think something like the Oscars could have been. I think they were extremely thoughtful about the rule changes and I can really do nothing but applaud that. Yeah. There is a term that gets tossed around some films which are referred to as quote unquote Oscar bait. Do you think that's a thing? Or how would you describe a so called Oscar bait film? <laughs> yes, it's 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 very much a thing. And and it kind of always has been. And it's it's certainly not something new, although people feel like it's kind of like a new thing. I don't know why it's not. It's always been that way. Yeah. Biopics are pretty classic Oscar bait. Um, we used to refer to films like uh, period pieces, like a Dangerous Liaisons or something, that you know always get like the costume and production yeah. design and makeup and hair and all that as the coffee book table awards. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody listening would be familiar with that, but that was kind of a phrase that was used a lot in like the 80s or something. And it was like, here's like the really pretty movies and the really like beautiful movies. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I think obviously Oscar rates still exist because we see them all the time. We see, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and Judy and uh, United States versus Billy Holiday. Biopics will always kind of fall into the Oscar bait category negatively or positively it's you know it can it can be either but i think what's happening and has happened in the last decade is definitely a move from what the definition of oscar bait is it's it's not necessarily you know english patient and casablanca and out of africa you know it's parasite and it's moonlight and it's spotlight and the shape of water these are not movies and stories that have ever won before or the types of movies that have ever won before. So when the needle moves, is it still Oscar bait? Because it's, you know, the indie movie or the weird movie or the foreign movie? I don't know. I don't know if it's still Oscar bait. 
I think we have to kind of reevaluate what we think that phrase means year to year. I think it's weird because they've gone like back and forth between what some people define as as Oscar bait, at least in the best picture category, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you get, like you said, something like Shape of Water, which is a really unconventional story. I mean, uh, you get a love story with a sea creature, with a monster. And then it goes back to something like Green Book, which it's not a bad film. I mean, but but oh. it's more... <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Um, but but it's more traditional fare, more Oscar Beatty, and then Absolutely. they go back. Then they go back to something like Parasite, which is like something that nobody. I don't. I don't think that a lot of people were expecting it to win, which makes me wonder where they will go this year. But we'll see. Absolutely, and that's one of the interesting things about the last couple of years is that we are the the Oscar so uh, white. <laughs> uh, from April Rain, which started in 2015 or 2016, erupted after those two years of uh, of all white nominees, and then we got Bam, you know, we got Moonlight, and Bam, we got The Shape of Water, and with also both of those years was a huge influx of new members because each year now has been like six to nine hundred new members are invited, and wow. so it's 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 massive. Although we can talk about that in a minute of who actually gets invited and the how the uh, the shift of the membership has happened in a way that I think people are not expected. But so so what we got were these two completely left of center best picture winners in the preferential ballot era, which has to be something that we consider and talk about when I'm doing my predictions and, and like statistic based stuff. I, I look at obviously the whole, you know, 93 years of the Oscars, but the only really important parts are from 2009 and on. And that's because of the expanded era. And then next year, you know, we're getting a solid 10 again. So no more like weird fluctuations because, you know, when the voting changes, you have to change how you look at statistics you had and how you look at history. Same with like BAFTA this year. It has to be looked at completely on its own. And I also look at as best picture winners within the microcosm of that year politically and socially, both in the United States and worldwide, and what impact that might have or or might not have. And obviously, 2020 was an incredible year of social impact. So we have to look at we have to look at the eight films that we have this year and what the, each of them represent for this year. Do they represent, you know, an answer, a question? Empathy, the opposite. What 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 do they represent that a voter is going to be like? This is the thing. This is how I feel right now in this moment. But don't you think that if that's the case, because a lot of people criticize, you know, they're voting for, like you said, what the film represents, not the film itself. And the same applies with some acting performances. You know, they're voting for this actor or actress because of what he or she represents or because she didn't win last year and she deserves it or other reasons that are not the film itself or the performance itself. You know... <laughs> I mean, I, I know I, I we're we're trying to get into the mind of the academy voters, right? Because and when we can do that, and I know that's how their minds work. Yeah, sometimes, uh, but, absolutely. 
But Sometimes what would you absolutely. say about that? I mean, you know, I you know obviously this year we're talking about like Glenn Close is the example of that, and she's on her eighth nomination, and she's not going to win for this. Uh, so she <laughs> it's will. It's a tight race. That's a tight race. I think so, but she's not in that tight race. I don't think. And you know, she might be at an at another time, and then she will really be on her own. You know, the next time that she's nominated. I think sometimes, yes, voters make those kinds of decisions. And then sometimes they don't. Because for every Al Pacino and Paul Newman, you know, there is a Deborah Kerr or a Thelma Ritter or a Richard Burton or Peter O'Toole who gets, you know, seven, eight, nine nominations and still loses all the way to their death. That's it. You're you're done. You're not getting anything. So it happens and then sometimes it doesn't happen. So there isn't there isn't a there isn't a guideline really of yeah. how something like that happens. There isn't a guideline for how something like Green Book happens over Roma, other than you know, if I had to say, there might be might have been a large enough you know selection of the Academy members that were really put off by the last. The, the previous two years and the influx of new members and the feeling of, am I going to be kicked out because, you know, I haven't made a movie in 10 years or because somebody thinks I'm old and racist. <laughs> so, so there is sort of like a, uh, it's a counter reaction. And I think that's what green book was. I think green book was a counter reaction to what was going on over the last two years. And then bang, you know, we kind of bounce back again with Parasite, yeah. which, you know, was history making. I, I, I think this year is pretty cut and dry of what's going to happen. And that's also going to be history making. But what's next? What's next year going to look like? It's I feel like next year is is going to give us something super, quote unquote, traditional. OK, but but you're you're giving me false advertising because you, just, you said there's no recipe or there's no way to tell but the other half of the description of your site says follow me as i examine the historical statistical political and social elements of what can get you to that award stage or yes. leave you outside looking in so <laughs> i want to know but that's but that's that that's actually that's what i just said that's that's what i just said that that i do think that a, a large section looks at what's happening socially. So that, you know, helps empathetic movies. It helps something like Trial of Chicago 7. And and I do think that in the year of Moonlight and La La Land, where La La Land kept winning everything, but it's a bit of a, and this is no change along that because I love it. It's a bit of a trifle, uh, whereas Moonlight was, you know, super serious and completely different from anything that's, you know, been Best Picture nominated. And then the 2016 election happened, which I think like stopped people in their tracks where they felt like the United States was going socially, politically, and then what that was going to mean for the world. In that sense, you know, I do think, say, if, if Hillary Clinton had won, La La Land probably would have had a much better chance of winning. And I think that's I feel I feel very good about saying that. I don't feel it's a strange comment at all because I do think that voters do think that way. Not all of them, obviously, yeah. but I do think so. That's why I, I put that on, on the site and why I describe it that way, because passion will get you votes. It will get you nominations. It will get you a win. But there has to also be a consensus and a collective about what that is, which is what the preferential ballot has done for us now. It's no longer 
whoever gets the most votes wins. Ironically, and pretty kind of funny, considering I was just talking about the 2016 election, (laughs) it's sort of like the electoral college rather than the popular vote. And there you go. (laughs) No, obviously I'm just uh, yanking your shame. I'm just kidding with you. No, totally, totally. (laughs) But on a similar line, what would you say, and I know this might be a big question, but what would you say is the biggest snub the Academy has performed? This in year, your opinion? like ever. Ever. Oh my God. Ever? <laughs> yeah. Or the first one that comes to your mind, the one that you say, I can't believe they didn't give the award to this one or, or they didn't even nominate this one. You know, anybody that knows me or follows me probably knows what I'm going to say because I'm super basic. But... <laughs> uh, I, I will only look recently because I if, yeah. if I have to if I have to mine through my my brain of 93 years of snubs I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna like short circuit or something, but I will look to Jake Gyllenhaal's snub for Nightcrawler 2014 as really horrible and awful awful. Uh, is it the, is it the worst? Absolutely not. But. As an absolute Gyllenholic, that is the one that I will kind of go to as the the one that I was just like, it's why? Yeah. It is his best performance. It's yeah. a great film. Definitely. Everybody Definitely. in it deserved it. Yes. So it's you know, but there's a yeah. lot. There there are there are so many. We mentioned earlier people that are nominated and never win. You know, I would have loved Selma Ritter to to be an Oscar winner at some point. There are dozens, and and I think the further you go back, the the more you go. Okay, well, this is you know a huge missed opportunity for tremendous amount of underseen people that are never given the chance. So I I, th- I think that's again we're we're headed in a direction at least with the Oscars that is a very positive one. Yeah, we're gonna talk later uh, at the end of the show about our favorite BP winners or favorite Best Picture winners. But one quick one: which one do you think is the worst? Or your least favorite Best Picture winner? Crash. <laughs> it's always Crash. The answer will always be Crash. Always. There's, there are a couple of people that agree with you. Um, more than a couple. But <laughs> I, I, I asked on Twitter about what people think. And, and somebody said, worse, Crash, easily. I'm not a huge fan of Crash. I didn't mind it. I mean, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I, I didn't mind it. Was it subtle? No, but I don't think it was. If you ask me worst, I mean, I'm going to go way back, but the Broadway melody is just plain bad. Mm-hmm. That, that film is, is just bad. See my run is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Crash is like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about the ceremony. I'm going to throw you some quick-fire questions about some uh, ceremony things, and oh you God. give me your quick talks about it. Okay. Host, host or no host? Um, I like hosts when they are funny. <laughs> I don't like it when they are dependent on the network that is showing the Oscars. So, like, I don't like Jimmy Kimmel. I don't think he's a very good host. But it's on ABC, so he's, like, the only person that they're going to keep falling back to. I like it when the host is a performer themselves. Uh, Hugh Jackman, one of the best hosts that they've ever yeah. had, because he's a multi-talented performer. Yeah. Uh, he can do the musical numbers. He is extremely charming. He's disgustingly handsome. He's got <laughs> all of these things that make uh, perfect sense. I loved the opening 
that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and Maya Rudolph did in 2018 were like, we're not the hosts. But they spent, you know, like five, six minutes doing basically an opening monologue. That was kind of cool. And it was super clever. And, and I was down with that. So generally, I like a host. But only when they can really, when they're really funny, move things along and be actually a part of the show. I like it when they are integral to the show and not just, whatever, an MC. Yeah. The In Memoriam segment, how can we improve it? Um, make sure that everybody gets in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's really the toughest thing because, you know, if you die two days before the Oscars, you are fucked. You're so screwed. Yeah. And it's not really fair. But generally, I I'm here's what I'm not actually a fan of. I'm not a fan of the live performance singing during the in memoriam. Yeah. There's something strange about it to me, and you lose focus because you're thinking about that person singing or they're showing that person singing. Just play some music, play a composition. Yeah. BAFTA just did their in memoriam today, and the first person after Prince Philip uh, that they had was Ennio Morricone. The entire in memoriam was underscored by his composition. Beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And not distracting. So the only the only thing I would recommend is just don't do something that's distracting. Yeah, I agree. Speech duration. I think every speech should be 20 to 30 minutes long. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love long speeches as much as I love short ones. I will take Rita Moreno's, you know, 15 second speech as much as I will take anybody that is like I'm I'm not gonna I'm just gonna not pay attention to that teleprompter and I'm gonna say the things that I need to say about people that I want to thank uh, I love long speeches I love them I love passionate speeches I love people that um, I just reposted like Olivia Coleman's speech oh he, we're gonna talk about that one because it's it's absolutely an all-timer it's hilarious please wrap up <laughs> she's just she's It's iconic. I love her. So, no, I, I cannot stand the 45-second, 90-second speeches. Musical numbers. Hmm. Again, when they're done well, they're great. When they're not, and it's like Amy Adams having to sing an ensemble, beautiful, funny song all by herself. No. No. It's not right. <laughs> I also don't I'm also not really a big fan of the songs being sung by other people than who they are in the film. I'm, Generally. I'm, I agree with you, but recently there's like a lot of musical numbers and sometimes it's at the expense of others, for example, uh, speeches because I hate to see the band interrupt a good speech. So I don't know. Like you said, I, I agree. And there's no way to know which musical number is going to be good, which musical number is going to be bad, which speech is going to be moving, which speech is going to just going to be whatever. But I don't know. I think that they can rein it in a bit. Yeah. And then sometimes you get like a really awesome car wreck of a performance like the Crash uh, <laughs> song, which, you know, is a terrible song, but the performance was absolutely horrible it's awful but it's so funny and fun to watch and then you get you know beautiful ones like the oscar winner from once uh the falling slowly and it's just like this this is what it is and this is all it needs to be just just allow the song and the performance to reflect the song and the film that it's in period 
like I said, I went and asked on Twitter for people to share their favorite Oscar speeches or Oscar moments of all time. Most people got stuck on speeches and they just mentioned a couple of speeches, but I want to share uh, some of them. And cool. you mentioned you mentioned Olivia Colman and a <laughs> lot of people, a lot of people, not three people, <laughs> but uh, Wes Richard, he mentioned Olivia Colman. Scotty, my friend Scotty, he mentioned Olivia Colman. He said, I love Olivia Colman's speech for best actress, funny and heartfelt. And Alex Bustillo, he said, forever this queen. And he posted a, a, a gif of Olivia Colman. My kids are at home and watching, look. Well, if you're not, then, well, kind of, well done. But um, I sort of, sort of hope you are. This is not going to happen again. Um, and, uh, uh, and any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. And when I... I, I used to work as a cleaner, and I loved that job. I did spend quite a lot of my time imagining this. Oh, please wrap up. Right, okay. And, um, uh, thank you. She was great. She was, yeah. uh, like uh, Scotty said, funny, heartfelt, moving. I rewatched it when he brought it up, and I was my eyes uh, swelled up because she was great. Mm-hmm. The other moment that most people mentioned, weird enough, but I agree, was uh, Jack Palance doing push-ups. It's kind of difficult. They forget. They forget to ask that you go out there and you do all these things. Like, for instance, you know, you go out there and you do these... No, that's, that's, that's nothing really. As far as the two-handed push-ups are concerned, you can do that all night. And it doesn't make any difference whether she's there or not. They do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, very well. Of course. Yes. It was cool. It was cool. <laughs> Weird and cool. Ronnie Gasol mentioned it. My friend Ian from the Best Film Ever podcast, he said, best moment has to be Jack Palance doing push-ups for his acceptance speech. But honorable mention to Roberto Benigni's pair of speeches for Best Director and Foreign Language Film. And my friend Brian Clarkson also mentioned Jack Palance. The other one that got the most mentions was Halle Berry, Halle Berry's speech. This moment so much bigger than me. This moment is for Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll. It's for... The women that stand beside me, Jada Pinkett, Angela Bassett, Vivica Fox, and it's for every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because this door tonight has been opened. Philip said, genuinely, when Halle Berry won, I'm not the biggest fan of Monsters Ball and her character, but to see a black woman win Best Actress and give a speech like Halle gave, it brings me to tears when she mentions the women before her and how she hopes that her win will open doors. And Erika at E-Rock Reviews, she said, Halle Berry, she was genuinely touched and overwhelmed and awestruck and all the things. Yeah. Other moments that were mentioned, Dylan Randazzo mentioned Roberto Benignis, and he put a gif of him walking on the chairs, which was all kinds of weird. Daniel Jose mentioned Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse winning Best Animated Film. Jake Lemberg mentioned The Streaker and David Neven's uh, comeback <laughs> comment. 
Uh, Sylvie at Sly underscore witch said, even though I'm a big fan of the Oscars, I'm not a big one for the speeches. I like the unconventional moments and surprise winners. And one win that stands out is Barbara Streisand presenting the best song to Eminem. Great presentation and nice speech. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that great. Was, I mean. That was really funny. <laughs> And she also mentioned, since we were talking about host, and I agree, the first set of Billy Crystal years were the best run of ceremonies in my memory. That first time he did the opening song with all the nominees was just mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. Garen Groom, he set a tie. Mary Pickford receiving her honorary Oscar at Pickfair. And mm -hmm. Catherine Hepburn making her one and only surprise appearance at the ceremony. Yep. Tim Doggerty, we were talking about short speeches. He mentioned Joe Pesci for Godfellas. Well, it's my privilege, thank you. Yeah. You said, I mean, he went just like, thank you. That's yep, it. yep. Tom, you gotta love friend. that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people are talking about it, so <laughs> he, he got the work done. Tom, at Deaf Heaven, he said, I've never been a fan of award shows, so don't really have any standout moment. But that said, I would consider Hattie McDaniel's Oscar and Sidney Poitier to be important pivotal moments. Yeah. The Friends at the Envelope, Please, which is a great podcast about the Oscars, they said, we absolutely die watching Fred and Ginger present at the 1967 Oscars when they go into that amazing unplanned dance sequence. So perfect. <laughs> Clayton Davis at Award Circuit, he said Tom Hanks for Philadelphia because it gave birth to in and out That's a film I don't see mentioned often. I, I was actually going to mention that as one of my favorites as well. Yeah, it was a great speech. But the film, in and out I mean, it doesn't get mentioned that often. I haven't seen it in 20 years. It's so good. One of the, one of my favorite supporting actress nominations of all time. I, I have to revisit. Jameson Worley, he mentioned Marion Cotillard winning. Mm -hmm. Bookbind with Katie, she mentioned the La La Land Moonlight Gaff. And I agree, that has to be one of the... I mean, I've seen that video more times than it's sane because it's <laughs> so shocking and weird. But on the other hand, I always say that I admired the grace with the way that people handled it. Uh, I mean, especially, uh, I keep forgetting his name, the guy from, from La La Land. The, the George, Jordan Horowitz. Yes. Uh, yep. the, the way he handled it was just perfect. A lot better than the other producers, I'll say that much. Yes, yes, definitely. L. Warren at Super Trooper, he said, Graham Moore winning for the imitation game, a perfect mixture of humor, heart, and hope. I always tear up watching it. Um, so in this brief time here, what I want to use it to do is, is to say this. Um, when I was 16 years old, I tried to kill myself um, because I felt weird and I felt different and I felt like I did not belong. And now I'm standing here. And so I would like for this moment to be for... That kid out there who feels like she's weird or she's different or she doesn't fit in anywhere, yes, you do. I promise you do. You do. Stay weird, stay different, and then when it's your turn and you are standing on the stage, please pass the same message to the next person who comes along. Thank you so much. I love you guys. That was a great speech, too. Yeah. And Joanna M.M., she said, Robin Williams for Good Will Hunting, followed with his onstage hug with Billy Crystal. Mm -hmm. I'm a Robin Williams fan, so yeah. I love it. Okay, so before we go to our next part, you want to play a game? <laughs> okay. Quick game, quick game. <laughs> All right. uh, and I'm, I'm calling the game The Oscars Over Under. I'm going to mention a couple of 
either actors or crew members or films and some fact about their nominations or their wins and i'm going to ask you uh, how many oscars they had win or how many nominations or is it over or is it under this amount oh my god it's a quiz uh, so what do you say oh, yes no <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm gonna start i'm gonna start with an easy one metal strip she has been nominated 21 times but how many times has she win she has three wins Two just three and one yes. supporting okay uh john williams he has five wins he has won five oscars yeah. but how many times has he been nominated oh my god over um, over or under 50 oh isn't it 51 <laughs> close 52 52 yeah yeah you're yeah good. hey yeah you're good <laughs> the color purple it was nominated to uh, 11 awards yeah um, how many did it win it won zero completely yes <laughs> tied not, tied with the uh, turning point for the most nominations mo- and no most wins. nominations yeah 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 alfred hitchcock he never won an oscar but how yeah. many times was he nominated he, oh my god just once right oh my no, god five times five times, five times yes. am i crazy oh my god i'm gonna be like <laughs> Run out of town! I swear to God. <laughs> no, no. Oh you're wait, no. Good. Only one. Only Rebecca got Best Picture nominated. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs. It was nominated to seven awards, but how many did it win? It won five. Yeah, the big five. The big five. Yes, only one of three, I think. Right. That is correct. And just one. One more. Amy <laughs> Adams. Six <laughs> nominations. How many wins? Zero. Zero. And I can't believe that. Poor thing. She should have at least one. Yes, definitely. Okay, so let's dive into this year's. Let's talk about this year's awards. Um, Mm -hmm. First, what do you expect in regards to the ceremony and the changes and considerations because of COVID? So I've heard a few things. And then obviously we had some announcements released that include that it's going to be at the Dolby Theater and at Union Station in Los Angeles. And I think the thing that surprised people is that the Union Station, they are not closing down the train station. will still be running. Uh, they'll just be doing the Oscars all in and around everything that's happening. I think that's fascinating. And with somebody like Steven Soderbergh behind it, he is a pretty revolutionary filmmaker. So I think if anybody can pull off a cool, weird show, he's the one to do it. So I'm pretty excited about that element. Um, I'm definitely excited about a different location. I think that'll be kind of cool, even though I felt like it was a no-brainer to do this at the Hollywood Bowl because it's an open-air environment. And I can see the reason not doing it because you never know if there's going to be weird temperamental weather. But it's also April 25th. So it's probably going to be 75 degrees and super beautiful in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, and what are your overall thoughts on the nominees this year? I love the nominees. It's one of the best sets of nominations in my lifetime. It's unfortunate, I guess, that it took a pandemic to get voters to recognize films and performances in mass that they normally go, okay, cool. Here's the one indie film that we're going to support this year. This year, it's kind of all over the place. And I'm really happy about that. Was there a nomination that was uh, surprising to you? A biggest surprise? 
Um, hmm. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield probably was the biggest surprise. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, no one saw that. Absolutely nobody. And if they said they did, they're a liar. <laughs> and and how? I mean, they put him and and Daniel Kaluuya in the same category. Yes, they did. Do you think they killed both of them with that? No, no, because Danny Kalu is going to win. Um, okay. I, I do think it's strange. It's so funny because it took like 25 years for the Oscars to nominate two supporting actors from the same movie. And now it's happened three times in the last four years. So it's it's weird. You you never you never know how things are gonna go, and that's one of the things that's so fun about this. It's one of the things that's so fun about predicting is that yeah, we knew that Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson were both gonna get in. We knew that Joe Pesci and Al Pacino were both gonna get in because they both each year kind of they they went down the path that was gonna pretty much make it happen. That was not the case this year at all. So it just makes for a really cool nomination. Yeah, I agree. And what would be uh, the biggest snub, in your opinion? The one that you thought that he will be nominated or she will be nominated or this film will be nominated, but wasn't? I, I think with, because of the sliding scale of Best Picture, we only got eight nominations this year. And there's only ever been eight or nine in the entire existence of this preferential expanded ballot. But Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami both missing was pretty shocking to me, especially especially Ma Rainey, because it has the front-runner best actor uh, winner in it. So in this era, in the expanded ballot era, it's only happened one time that the best actor winner came from a non-best picture nominee. So it's that was a surprise. And is there anyone that you think is a shoo-in? Oh, I think there's a lot of shoo-ins, yes. Okay, so let's then talk about your predictions. Let's go about... about <laughs> uh, we don't have to hit all the categories. I mean, we can do a quick fire about uh, all the categories, but let's let's just head to the main ones, maybe, sure. uh, so you, to speak. You can ask whatever ones. I've got my list right in front of me, so I can go right to it. Ah, okay, okay, let's go. Visual effects. Visual effects. Ah, cool. That's actually kind of a fun and, and weird one. I don't think it's as, as difficult as I thought it was going to be, but I think Tenet's going to win, and its production design nomination kind of secures that. It won BAFTA today, even though it lost to Visual Effects Society, but I think it's got it. Editing. Really, really fun category. Cool. You're picking the ones that are actually up in the air and have a little bit of, <laughs> of fight in them. You know, we don't have the, the Ace Eddies until next weekend, but the tide has clearly turned in favor of Sound of Metal, and I think Sound of Metal is going to win. It won BAFTA today, yes, okay. or yesterday. Uh, cinematography. That's easy. That will be Nomadland. Okay, yeah. Gorgeous film. Mm-hmm. Original song? <laughs> really tough category i'm uh i'm like i i made my uh i wrote down my list for all of my final predictions because i'm going to be doing you know five days of them next week and then five days of them the week after and break them all apart uh, and do like anywhere from like two to three a day and i'm doing song the very first day on monday the 12th which is tomorrow from recording this and i'm still a little up in the air 
I think it's a really exciting category because Diane Warren is on her 12th nomination, but it's the only nomination for the film. Husevik is the best song of the top five and the only one that's a part of the movie. And then Speak Now from One Night in Miami has a lot of heat to it, too. So I think it's one of those three. But as of at least last Friday, I do have the Diane Warren song, IOC. Okay. But, but we'll see what my final looks like. That one's tight. Uh, yeah. And score? Uh, Soul. Easy. Okay. International feature film. Um, Because of the way that the voting is done now, it will be another round. Okay. And animated feature? Soul. Although I wish okay. Wolfwalkers could, you know, have like a really great fun upset, but it's it's so. <laughs> now that you mention it, international feature, do you agree with another round or? I love another round. I think it's great. Um, yeah, it's great. I will not have any issue with it winning. Although Kovada Saida is absolutely incredible. I've heard great things about oh, it. The only one I've, I've seen is uh, another round from that group, but I've heard great things about Kovadis. Tremendous. Original screenplay. Original screenplay. I'm going with Promising Young Woman. It makes perfect sense as an original screenplay winner. I would. I had Trial pegged there a while ago, but only if it was going to be winning Best Picture, which I don't think it is now. And adapted screenplay? Adapted is a little tougher. The father winning the BAFTA today wasn't a big surprise, but I think it has a good chance of winning there over Nomadland. I think it's one of the two is are the only real contenders. And I think part of it is, are voters going to give Chloe Zhao two Oscars, three Oscars, or four Oscars? <laughs> How many they're going to give her? Um, they don't <laughs> usually have that much of an issue when it's a male director. Alfonso Cuarón just you know won three a couple of years ago. Ah, I want to lean to Nomadland because I have it in my head that there's a really good chance that the film could completely sweep all six of its nominations. But it's going to be very close. I think The Father and Nomadland are very close. So no chance for Borat? No. <laughs> Sorry, but okay. no, no. no. <laughs> Supporting actress. Supporting actress. I was already going to be a uh, total yes for uh, Yu Jung Jung after SAG. And then the BAFTA win today. I'm like, yeah, she's got it. And supporting actor? Supporting actor. Said? Yeah, Daniel Kalu. That's he's he's swept everything. He's he's cleaned up completely. Okay. Actress? <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I'm I not ready. I'm I'm not ready. I'm actually holding off on my, my best actress picks, my prediction, until like the Friday after next. I'm really, really it's it's too tough. I think there is a case for everyone except for Vanessa Kirby, both historically as well as just kind of what makes sense in terms of, of this year. I can make a case for all of them, for Viola Davis and her SAG win, for Andre Day and her Globe win, for Frances McDormand in the Best Picture frontrunner, for Carrie Mulligan in the biggest, wildest, bravest performance. There's, there's a case for everybody. I... I, it wasn't like a huge surprise that Francis McDormand won BAFTA. That was not really a, like a thing. But uh, I don't know. I I'm 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 not going to commit. I'm sorry, Caroline. I, I can't commit. Not yet. 
One of my one of my Twitter friends, Brian Clarkson, he said, "I'm gonna call it Viola Davis wins Best Actress," uh, and I think I don't know. I think I agree with you. It's really tight, but I think Viola will take it. And here's the thing: uh, when I did my front runner Friday, which was just a couple of days ago, I do have Viola Davis at number one, and I feel comfortable about that at least for that time. I have to really, really think about it though. <laughs> and what about Best Actor? Uh, I still think Chadwick Boseman is going to win, even though, you know, Anthony Hopkins did show a bit of strength today. But I, I still think he's got it. I don't know about recently, but a couple of months ago, the talk was like Hopkins Boseman and Hopkins was usually, from what I read, I mean, I'm no expert, but Hopkins was usually the one that I saw like most people vouching for. Yeah, I mean, it's a great performance. Uh, my friend Jolene from It Goes Down in the PM, she says Boseman wins Best Actor. So, I, I think so. So let's go to let's go with the last two Best Director. Uh, the last two are you know actually the easiest outside of maybe Daniel Kaluuya, and that's Chloe Zhao winning Best Director and making history doing it, and then Nomadland winning Best Picture. So Frances Best. McDormand's going to get an Oscar either way this year. Oh, yeah, she's, she's producer, right? Yes. Uh, so, Mank, Sweep, or not? <laughs> uh, snub? You know, maybe back in the, in the summer, you know, it, it would have been easy to be like, yeah, sure, Mank can totally just go all the way through here. There's there's some animosity because uh, one of my friends, Ken, he said, if Mank sweeps, I will yeet the very concept of awards into space. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't think he has. To and he was joined in the mob. No, no, no. Uh -huh. I, I I agree with him that I think it's not going to take anything. But gonna, uh, it'll Silby, get one. It'll get production design. Yeah, yeah. But Sylvie, another friend, another Twitter friend, she said, "My earnest hope is Mank gets completely shut out, which is entirely possible. Its best chance is production design, like you said. But the trash black and white does that no favors on television screens. And if people actually watch it, I think they will give Ma Rainey the nod." Wow. That's very... It was harsh. That is very <laughs> harsh. Wow. So those were good predictions from you. And I agree with, I think, with most. I mean, my predictions, I haven't seen a lot of the nominees. So my predictions are more based on the bus and, and what I read and, and see yeah. around. But you I know, agree that, with most. That's actually a great thing. I, I have a very good friend who I have been friends with for 20 years. And she would rarely see any of the films. Everything that she would do prediction-wise was buzz-based. And she did so well every single year because she she had her personal feelings totally removed from it. There was no bias. You know, she was only going off of buzz. And I yeah. was like, ah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's... Uh, head to the last part of the show and let's talk about our picks our Oscar loot and I mean by that out of the whole list of 92 winners what are the ones that you and I consider our favorite films so let's start with you start with your number five then I go with my number five and work our way to our number one all right this is this is real this is a really weird thing because I you know I I put my list together both obviously on you know, deep personal preference, but I also kind of wanted to look at things and, you know, what they represented. Uh, you know, I just, I used a lot of factors. Uh, my number five is The Apartment from 1960 because it's, it was so unlike a Best Picture winner. I mean, it's a comedy, it's a call girl 
romantic comedy. It's it doesn't it doesn't make any sense as a best picture winner, but it is so yeah. good. And Shirley MacLaine is amazing and should have won the Oscar for this. I adore it. And Jack Lemon basically is always always amazing. I I yeah. love it. I adore it. I agree. It's a great film. I love it. It didn't make my top five, but I had it on uh, honorable mention slot because cool. I, I just love it. I think it's a great film. Okay, so my number five, the fifth one is always the hardest because, you know, it's the last one and, mm-hmm. and you have many, many others that you want to recognize or acknowledge. But I went with Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Unforgiven back when I was in my late teens and liking it, but thinking that I think this is a bit slow. I remember I liked the last act more because, you know, that's a big shootout and that's when everything explodes and blows up. But as I got more into films and got more into Westerns, I really started to appreciate this more and more and what Clint Eastwood brought to it. I now think it's superb. It's probably my favorite Clint Eastwood film and my favorite Western of all time. I think it's a great complex performance from uh, both Eastwood and Hackman. The supporting cast, I think, is great and, and it's an excellent deconstruction of the genre. Cool. I like that. So, in number four? My number four pick is Amadeus from 1984 and it's so <gasps> It's so funny because we were just talking about Oscar bait and coffee table, you know, films. And this totally falls right into both of those categories. It's a biopic, but it is so endlessly creative and fun and volatile. And it's like also like a thriller. It has two of the best male performances that have ever been put to film. Although I would have given Tom Hulse the Oscar over F. Murray Abraham, if only because... As amazing as Abraham is, and I would never take anything from him, you know, it is a classic villain, really juicy uh, role and amazing performance. But I think what Tom Hulse does and the comedy he brings and the lightness and looseness was just, I mean, I was very young when I saw this, but it was so unexpected. He's so, so good. And it's just gorgeous looking and it's rich yes. dripping with period details and i i love it yeah i agree i agree uh, my number four it's no country for old men i'm a coins fan and fargo is probably my favorite of them but no country for old men is probably number three for me out of the coins uh, it is the kind of film that sticks with you for so many reasons the weird tone which is a typical coin. The great performance. I mean, Javier Bardem is excellent, but everybody, everybody in the cast is great. The witty script and that last act, which goes against any preconception or expectations that you might have about this kind of film. Well, the coins just throw it out the window and, and they do it their way. And I, I just love it. It's, it's everything you just said. It's, it's such an unconventional winner, and it's the kind of things that I was looking for when I was wanted to make a top five for this and it's crazy that that well i don't want to spoil anything but it's not on my list it's not on my top five but it would be in my top ten but it's also you know i could i could look at my top five and it would be different every single day you know you never okay, know okay okay we'll see you later then <laughs> so <your> number three <laughs> my number three is all about eve 1950 um all about eve for me is the film version of Oscar watching. Everything about it is is about awards hunger and the race and aging in Hollywood. 
and you know the the younger upstart coming into to kind of destroy you which is also weirdly enough amadeus too there's an element of both amadeus and all about eve that are quite similar that i didn't when i put it together it was very subconscious and i'm only really just kind of looking at it by seeing them close together right now but also too i mean you know all about eve is just it's it's betty davis in one of her best performances it's it's the the gayest movie without being gay kind of thing it's there is there is an iconic nature to it that is that is undeniable and you know my list might not be the five best even though they're my five best <laughs> but oh, it's it, it it represents um i think it represents me as a fan of the oscars and a follower and just as an all-around amazing film that year was just phenomenal period 1950 was amazing but you know, I I don't know, I don't know any Oscar watching queen who has not wanted to be Betty Davis in this movie at least once. <laughs> no, it, it's a great film. I agree, great film, great performance. I love it. My number three, my top three might be a bit predictable or, or basic, but like I said, I went with the ones I love, no matter what. So my number three is Casablanca. Uh, I mean, what's not to love? You have great, great performance from Bogart and Bergman. You have a supporting cast. I mean, Paul Henry, Claude Rains, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet. Those are all all great. You can go wrong with them. But I really love how the film deals with the black and whites. And I don't mean that it's a black and white movie, but I, mm-hmm. I mean how it deals with the ambiguity and the moral of pretty much every character. Also, how the ending, which is an iconic ending, uh, also goes against what you might expect. I mean, everybody expects Bogey to end with Bergman, but the film goes against that. And I love that. I love it. I love the film. Yeah, it does everything that, that you just said. It, it breaks from tradition. And I think that's kind of what a lot of our films that we have picked have done. And I'm really kind of excited for that, that we're both picking winners that really bucked the trend of what it means to be a best picture winner which you know goes back to our oscar bait conversation it's like what is oscar bait what is a best picture winner so i I think that's a great choice yeah and your number two (laughs) my number two of all time is parasite yeah um not only is it an absolutely exquisite film it is what we just talked about it is the kind of thing that breaks all barriers for what a best picture winner has been and what it can be and that's the thing that i'm most excited about that it opened the door for what a best picture winner can look like i mean i'm a huge fan of bong joo ho anyway and i think he creates like you said, moral ambiguities that are so fascinating that it makes his stories and his films so compelling. Things are not always black and white, and you do have to navigate morals and ethics that might make you question yourself and and what you think is the right thing to do. I I think this is an absolutely perfect film. It is gorgeously shot. It is perfectly acted. The score is amazing, and I cannot, I can't extol the virtues of this movie anymore. 
it's great. That's another one I had on my short list. I ended up leaving it out, but I also have it like down there in my honorable mentions. I wanted mm-hmm. to like at least acknowledge it, but it's great. And I'm also a fan of Bong. It's great. I, I still haven't seen Okja. It's the only one of his films I haven't seen, but the other ones, everyone, every single film of his, I, I at least liked, but most of them I've loved. It's mm-hmm. great. My number two is The Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, it's easily one of my top 10 films of all time. I'm a fan of thrillers, and this one delivers everything you want from one. From nerve-wracking, edge-over-your-seat tension, a great script, excellent performances from everyone across the board. Everybody gives praise to Hopkins, and deservedly so, but I now find myself more in awe of Jodie Foster's performance, which I think is just excellent. There's a subtlety in her performance, the way she conveys Clary's strength and and skills, but through her own quote-unquote weaknesses of her character, the way you see her humanity. But not only her and and Hopkins, but the great supporting cast, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, uh, Anthony Heald, everybody's just perfect. And Jonathan Demme's direction is perfect. I mean, it's a great film. It is. It's and and again, that was another film that broke the mold for best picture. You know, yes. a horror thriller like that had never won before. I totally agree with you, and I think Foster is so good in this. She's so tight-lipped and closed, and she's got like really thin lips, so it just it looks like she just doesn't even want to open her mouth to speak for like the first half of the movie, and then she grows and gains this strength, even though. She's clearly a very strong person and a strong-willed person, uh, but she still is a very small, petite woman in a very large man and masculine world. And and I think it's I think she's amazing. I love that movie so 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 much. So uh, your number one, <laughs> my number one. And again, anybody that knows me or listens to me will not be surprised by this. But Moonlight is my favorite Best Picture winner of all time, all time. Not only is it a beautiful and elegant piece of filmmaking, it's the first Best Picture winner with an all-black cast. It's the first Best Picture winner with an LGBTQ theme as the main theme. And I've mentioned this on multiple podcasts because, you know, in following the, the Oscars, when Brokeback Mountain lost, it was a moment for me that really severed my affection for the Oscars. It's not that I was like so clueless to thinking that, yes, the Oscars always reward the best thing every year. But it was just, it hit at a really personal level. And it felt personal. I know it wasn't, but it felt personal. And so it just kind of broke my attraction and my affection. And when Moonlight came around... And it won. I felt like it was repairing something that had been broken for a really long time. And I loved seeing how how happy the kids were on stage when they finally got to the stage. I am I am a fan of every single person in this movie. I'm a fan of every shot from James Laxton. I am a fan of every note from Nicholas Patel. And every decision from Barry Jenkins in this. It is a triptych story that is really difficult to tell. I think it's very difficult to tell a cohesive story of three different ages of a person still be compelling. Because once you leave 
you know, one actor to go to another, you're essentially kind of starting a new relationship with that film. And you, you have to do it quickly. And the film has to either do that really well very fast, or it loses you very quickly. And all three actors are so compelling and so good. And then, yeah, the, the diner scene, I could give it my number one just for the diner scene. It's a really beautiful film. You know, if I were to tell you the film that was closest to make my top five, but I ended up uh, leaving it out with, with pain in my heart, it was Moonlight. <laughs> because I love it. I, I really love that film. I can share with you later. Uh, I'm not a professional writer, but I wrote a review of that film that I'm quite proud of. But I love how the film deals with the uh, themes of identity of a, a black gay man in all three stages of his life. I think it's great how people want to box you in certain, I mean, you're this or you're that. And I actually start my review with that uh, line that, that um, what's his name? Uh, Ali uh, tells the kid, says, yeah, I mean, you have to define, you have to, you have to find out who you really are. Nobody can tell you who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and through all the film, People try to box him in in certain niches. I mean, you're you're a black kid, or you're a gay kid, or you're a drug dealer, or or whatever. But the film goes against all of those preconceptions and issues of identity, and it's beautiful. It's actually my favorite film. I always say my favorite film from this decade, and probably on my top ten all time. It's great. Yay! So, <laughs> like I said, with pain in my heart, I, I, let out. I ended up going with Unforgiven because I've seen Unforgiven more, and I'm kind of like more uh, used to it. Uh, Moonlight, I've only seen once or twice, I think. And even though I love it, I kind of lean back to you know this is familiar. I've, I've seen this more, but I could have swapped either way. My number one, I'm gonna cheat a bit with this one, but <laughs> I went with The Godfather one and two. Uh, <laughs> I, sorry, what? <laughs> I, I just can't gauge one without the other because it's to your me show. They... You can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but they work so well together. To me, they're two real masterpieces in epic filmmaking, storytelling, acting. The cast, everybody's perfect. But Pacino, he gives probably what is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, lead male performance. The way you see his character devolve from someone who's rather idealistic and somewhat naive young man trying to run from his family to the cunning, heartless, cold, ruthless head of the mafia he becomes. Uh, It's just something else. The set pieces, I mean, everybody remembers, you know, the scene at the diner or the scene at the hospital or the baptism scene at the end of the the first one. It's just great. The direction is flawless. I just love both films. They're so good, so great, and I can watch them anytime I want, and I just have to watch them whole. I love yeah. them. They're amazing. They're landmark films. I, yeah, I love them both. But I might even, you know, like part two more, and I think Pacino is the reason. He is phenomenal. It's, yeah. That was, that was a great couple of years for him. It's, <laughs> it's so good. No, definitely. And it's so good because when you compare him, those performances with how I don't know why he changed his style or or, or his approach, mm-hmm. uh, but he was so subtle. Um, and, and I mean, you can even watch Godfather one and two, and then watch his performance in Godfather three, which I still like, but it's so different. I don't know, but he's great. Yeah, 
Okay, so great choices from you, and I love everything you have to say about those. To close the show, I want to share what my Twitter friends said about their favorite Best Picture winners. Cool. And the one that got mentioned most, there were uh, two. Two that were mentioned most. There were uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, uh, Scotty and Joanna Mim. Both mentioned Lord of the Rings. And it happened one night. Both Sylvie and the guys at the envelope, please. They both mentioned it. Sylvie said, the screwball is one of my favorite genres, and this is one of the first and best of those, impeccable script and comic timing, a well-deserved first sweep of the five major awards. And the guys at the envelope, please, they say it happened one night, but they also mentioned the best years of our lives and the apartment, which you mentioned. Yay! Nicole, from the Defining Disney podcast, she said, I've not seen many of the winners, but from a total selfish view, Chicago. It is such a good time, stellar cast, great plot. It was so deserving of Best Picture, in my opinion. Cool. Ken at InterCan, he said, Moonlight and Parasite come to mind. But my number one pick is No Country for All Men. I believe it's a piece of art for the ages. Nice. Jake Lemberg at Spade Archer Jake, he mentioned either All About Eve, which you mentioned, or wings and yes, uh, i wings. thought it was really uh yeah i said that to him and i said i say this to everybody that mentions wings i'm surprised that film is not mentioned more often other than to say it is the first best picture winner because it's so good it's technically impressive the story is good i like it a lot well and depending on how you look at it it could be actually the first gay best picture winner but it depends on how you look at it yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, that, the, that scene, the scene with the two friends towards the end, it's labeled as such. I mean, it's labeled, this is the first on-screen keys. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, love relationship, I love it. Even if you look past that, the relationship is so well-developed, so so strong, and you, you feel it so much, even more than their relationship with their respective girlfriends or paramours. Very much so. Tim Doggerty, he said One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Brian Clarkson, he said Casablanca, which also happens to be my number one film of all time. <laughs> Loser, L-E-W-Z-R, he said Favorite Best Picture winner. There's easily a good half dozen I could choose from, but today I'll go with The Deer Hunter. Least oh, wow. fave is easier, it's Scratch. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, you have, you have a partner there. <laughs> oh my God. And finally, my great friend, Infirmable Steve, he said that he parted. Oh, okay. So that's it. Those <laughs> are the picks from my Twitter friends. Eric, what can we expect from you and awards watch short term and long term? Well, it is, we're recording this on, uh, what is it? Sunday, Sunday, the April 11th. So the next couple of weeks will be my final Oscar predictions, so keep an eye out for those. I'll be spreading them out over the next two weeks so that they can be absorbed and analyzed and made fun of or whatever you need to do with them. But in those next couple of weeks, we do have some more guilds announcing. The majors have all announced, but we've got costume designers. We have sound and sound editors, film editors. Uh, we have a few more to go. The Annie's are next week as well. So I'm kind of, I'm spacing out my prediction pieces to come usually like the day after those are, are announced in those respective categories because I'm making my charts and stuff and I want them to be representative of everything post-Guild. So that's what we've got coming. Can't wait to check it out. Uh, and where can people find you on the internet? 
on the internet at awardswatch.com, on Twitter at awards underscore watch, and then Facebook and Instagram are just awardswatch. Okay, this is great. It's been a lot of fun to chat with you. Thank you for your time. Uh, I had a lot of fun. It was a great time. So my best wishes to you. Thank you so much. It was really, really fun to talk about everything here. It was, um, yes, I never get tired of this. I just don't. I, <laughs> I, I absolutely don't. So I, it was a, a pleasure. Same to you. Bye. Okay, bye. Well, that was it for the Oscar salute. Once again, I want to thank Eric from Awards Watch for his time. Had a great time talking with him. And if you bet on his predictions, make sure you sign two checks, one to Thieves Monthly Movie Loot and another to Awards Watch. But seriously, remember to follow Eric on Twitter and check out his website for up-to-date info on each and every film award. As for me, you know you can find me on Twitter at ThiefCGT and the podcast at TMML2021. You can also follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd. Remember also to share the podcast so more people can join us in the loot. Finally, stay tuned for our next episode, The April Loot, where I'll cover the loot of films I'm seeing during the month and our special episode number 5, which will hopefully come out the week before The April Loot. So that's it. Have a great... Wait, wait, hey. I'm not, I'm not finished. Hey. Have a great day and keep looting. Bye.